Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so excited to bring you this conversation, this episode today. Um, the, the person that I'm talking with today, Tish Harrison Warren, um, this is one of my favorite conversations that I've got to have recently. I love all of the conversations um, that I get to have on the podcast, but this one in particular, uh, just really in the time to whenever we were talking, it just really hit me hard. Um, or not hit me hard. It just really impacted me. And so I'm so grateful to be bringing this conversation to you. She has recently released a brand new book called Prayer in the Night. And the subtitle is For Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. And so we're going to get into that conversation here in just a moment. But before that, I do have a couple of things that I want to say real quick. First, I want to give a thank you to Sam Massey, who has created the music for this podcast, and another thank you to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for the podcast. Both of you two help make the podcast better than it would be without the two of you, um, because then it would just be me, and you two are so much better at the stuff that you do than I am, and I'm so glad, uh, I'm so grateful for the both of you. Uh, If this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, here we aim to create a safe place for difficult conversations because if you are on the journey of learning, if you consider yourself to be a lifelong learner as I consider myself to be one, then from time to time you may have encountered uh, certain people whose certain subjects are off limits uh, to talking with them about because maybe you're afraid of how they're going to respond or maybe you're afraid of of the shame that they'll give you, or maybe you feel, um, or maybe you can just sense really strong defensiveness from them. And you just know that you're not going to be able to have a productive conversation around here. Well, here on the learner's corner, we want to create a safe place to learn about those difficult things, to have some of those difficult conversations, even if you feel like you don't have anyone that you can learn with on those things. Hopefully we can be that person maybe for you until you can maybe find someone as well. But, or I was going to say, but, uh, you know, really here, we are a learning podcast and we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and everyone, anything and everything. And I'm so grateful that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me, especially if this happens to be your first time. I'm so excited for you to be here. Would love to hear from you. You can go ahead and reach out to me uh, at Caleb J. Mason, which is my Instagram handle, probably the best way to reach out. As I mentioned earlier, today I'm talking with Tish, and really she she introduced me or reintroduced me um, to the importance of liturgy. If you're, and if you're not familiar with that, we're going to get into it with our uh, conversation here in just a few minutes. But really, just with the season that I was going in, I didn't feel like I had any words, or I didn't really know what to pray. And so I was—I actually borrowed some of the liturgy from her and the prayer that she writes a lot in this book, and I just began to pray that. And it was incredibly helpful for me. Um, and so we're going to get into that conversation here in just a second. But before that, I want to tell you a little bit about Tish. She is an author of The Liturgy of the Ordinary Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, which was Christianity Today's 2018 book of the year. She is also a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. She has worked in ministry settings for over a decade as a campus minister with InterVarsity graduate and faculty 
Ministries as an associate rector with addicts and those in poverty through various churches and nonprofit organizations, and most recently as the writer in residence at Church of the Ascension in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She is a monthly columnist with Christianity Today, and her articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times. Religion News Service, Christianity Today, Comet Magazine, The Point Magazine, and elsewhere. She is also a founding member of the Pelican Project and a senior fellow with the Trinity Forum. And I'm so excited that she gets to be here on the Learner's Corner and join us for a conversation. And so here is my conversation with Tish Harrison Warren. Well, Tish, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today to talk about your brand new book, Prayer in the Night. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And and just as we get started, anytime that uh, that I start out a conversation with somebody, I always love hearing the story behind what made someone, you know, write this book or what are the what are the what's the event or the series of events that led to someone uh, feeling like they wanted to to publish this book. And I would just love to hear what made you want to write Prayer in the Night. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'm a writer. I mean, this is my second book that's come yeah. out and, um, and I write, I'm a columnist and I write for magazines and newspapers. So I'm always sort of thinking about what to write. Um, that's just, you know, that's just part of the gig as I'm thinking yeah. about what to write. But, and my editor for a long time was sort of like, when are you going to start your second book? When are you going to do your second book? And, um, so I actually had a totally different idea there was something else I wanted to write. And I went um, to sit down to write this other book, which was kind of more heady. This book's heady, but I mean more explicitly about doctrine. And um, and it felt like this, this idea came to me it, during that writer's retreat for another book. And, and it felt like it wouldn't let me go. I mean, I've described it elsewhere as like this, like a cat that you, that just keeps coming back to your house for more, like just you feed it once and then it just never leaves. And that, and it felt like this idea of this book, every time I tried to write something else, it was sort of like, I'm still here. You're not going to get away. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't, I, at first I was like, no, like, Lord, I do not want to write this book. Um, Partly because it felt like um, there was, so the book really is, it, um, comes out of my own experience of 2017, which is a really hard year for my family. Mm-hmm. I lost my father, my father died, and then we had um, two miscarriages and we moved across the country. So it was just like, in some sense, not unheard of or not catastrophic, um, tragedy, but just like a really rough year and specifically like a really rough six months. And, um, and so out of that prayer became really hard and I was exhausted. And, um, and so learning, how do I pray? How do I trust God? How do I come to God with all my questions and doubts? How do I not deny the reality of grief and loss and darkness or try to like pretty it up, make it easier to digest, but, but be really honest about the darkness in the world and still cling to hope 
to the light of Christ. So I had these questions sort of kicking around in my own heart with no plans on writing about them. And then, um, and, and so this idea kept coming up and I was like, oh, like, first of all, there's just a lot of Christian books about suffering already. They're like, we don't need another one. But then I was also like, I know if I do this book, I'm going to have to go back and revisit all those questions and all those struggles and all those doubts. And I just didn't want to, it felt like it was on the tail end of that. And I just didn't want to. And then I, I also knew, you know, once you write a book like this, everybody tells you the worst thing that's ever happened to them. So mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know if I'm up to that. So, so I was like, I don't know if I want to do this, but <clears throat> it just became very, very clear. At some point, the idea captured me enough of framing it around this prayer and thinking about darkness at night that I just thought, I mean, I just, at some point, you know, the, it's like a dare. It, you just, you, you have to do it or, or, or you, you got to walk away entirely from it. And I, I was sort of in this kind of for a while going back and forth with this. And it was like Fisher cup bait. So long story short, I ended up abandoning this other idea, um, at least for now. Yeah. And it just felt like it basically felt like I wasn't going to be able to continue to write. Hmm until I actually sat with my questions for a while, until I actually like faced the doubt that I was feeling, faced the struggle to trust God. It felt like anything else, if I wrote a book about doctrine, it would be a distraction actually from actually trusting God. Um, It would be sort of plugging up my doubt and fear and grief with theology, corking Mm -hmm. it instead of... um, really sitting with the Lord. And so um, this book became a way for me to examine my own life, like examine my own questions, my own thoughts, and where God was in the middle of that. And so it just, it just became more like, man, the, I, this, is a, this is a bridge that I, I kind of have to cross. If I'm going to be honest as a writer, anything else would be... Um, just sort of trying to avoid what's actually happening in me. Yeah. I, uh, this, this is just what I'm seeing and you can push back on this too. It's, it almost sounds like you, you, uh, were tempted to respond from an, to an emotional situation with logic or the theological piece Mm -hmm. of it. And, um, and obviously you didn't do that. So I'm curious, uh, actually I would love your thoughts on, um, do you think do you see that tendency in other people as well to respond to emotional situations with logic? Yeah, it's tr- here's a tricky thing for me because the book mm-hmm. is theological. Yeah. And I'm very pro theology. Yeah. So I actually think like we need to respond to things with logic. Um yeah. but there's also we also need to respond to things uh, I I guess I make a distinction between sort of logic and kind of cold rationality. Um, that would deny emotional reality. Mm. I mean, the fact is, um, emotions aren't just, um, who, who's a, um, Martha Nussbaum is a philosopher that makes this point that she calls, she talks about, um, emotions as hot cognitions, like cognitions Mm. being thoughts, like in that sense of they're not anti-rational, 
um, they're telling us something, pointing to something rational, but they're, um, but it's not, it's not sort of the cold, it's not mathematical. Right. And so it's pointing to true things. Um, often not always obviously yeah. emotions are fallen just as are and affected by sin and selfishness just like our rationality like just i mean just as our mental cognition or or logic is but so i um i guess i'm trying to bring both into the because the book has a pretty significant dose of theology yeah um and, but it also does have a lot about lived experience and Christian practice. And so um, I think it is sort of, it was more about letting my questions in the room. Um, and I think, I mean, the book deals a lot with what's called theodicy, right? Which is yeah. uh, how can God be all knowing? I know, I know you know what it is, but in case you're listening, yeah. don't, it's a, how can God be, um, good and like a kind God and all, all powerful and um, bad things regularly happen in the world. How is that logically possible? So there's that, there's a logical component on that. There's a dichotomy or a mis- there's a paradox um, and a mystery as I call it in the book, but to, but to the reality is, that every single one of us, whether you are a very, if you would consider yourself a very emotional person or not, if you consider yourself a very logical person, the reality is that that question is deeply heartfelt for us. Mm-hmm. It's very emotional. It can't just be this like cold rationality. If there was some sort of evasion to that, it would still not satisfy us because at the end of the day, we don't just want some mathematical answer to make that go away we want things to be set right we when your child is suffering or you have a deep deep grief or a deep loss or a relationship that's so important to you got broken or there's a global pandemic going around the globe you don't um there's not going to be like a tidy answer that makes you go Oh, well then that's okay. I mean, there's, there's something in your heart that says this is wrong and this needs to be set right. And I think that's, that's in your heart because that's true. It is wrong and it needs to be set right. And so I think there, I think we need theological um, responses and, Mm -hmm. and logical responses to this, but we also really need to, um, sit with the heart of this question. And so the book is really trying to pull both together. So I feel like I'm, I'm trying to, um, really hold together, um, you know, revealed theological truth in the scriptures, but also, um, lived human experience and the emotions, which by the way, like the scriptures are better at that than we are as Americans, like or Westerners. Like yeah. since the Enlightenment, we've put such a giant divide between, you know, the heart and the head for better. Like I don't feel like that's the best analogy, but um, and the scriptures, it's just totally not there. I mean, the Psalms are like so emotional, so dramatic. I mean, they're just so over the top, but they're also deeply theological and logical. Um, 
And we see that not only in the Psalms, but almost throughout the whole scriptures. We see that in Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. So talk to me kind of what that processing looked like or that, like for you wrestling through those questions that you had, what did that look like? Yeah. Well, okay. So there were, um, so there were sort of, for lack of a better word, like theological questions. Yeah. Like, how do I, how do we think about this? And, um, and I realized even in the course of writing this book, how really subtly, um, what's called the prosperity gospel kind of sneaks into my theology. I think the prosperity gospel is a heresy and it, it basically would say, you know, if you do your part and if you are good and faithful, God will keep bad things from happening to you. Mm-hmm. You'll have, you'll have your life will work out well. It'll be like what you want. And, um, there's little, I mean, Luther even talked about theology of glory. So this is not just a modern American phenomenon. The theology of glory would say a theology of glory, which he would call false, um, like wrong, untruthful teaching. It would say that like, um, you can see who God blesses by looking at wealth or by looking at, you know, things going well for them. And then when, and then the opposite, if, if someone is sick or poor, then they're not, they're not, God's not pleased with them. Well, so Luther counters that with theology of the cross, which is basically like, when you look at the cross, the very place of the very blessing of God is in the place you'd like least want it, least expect it. Right. And, um, and so, I found how much that had subtly sort of seeped in. Again, this is like precognitive, right? It's not like I would have confessed this. It wasn't logical, but my imagination had been shaped by this sort of American dream or things working out. Not a norm. I don't really have exactly a normal American dream, but like still like my own version of that, my own version of things working out for me and God being kind of part of that. So I had to, so much of this, I think is, um, it's not what we confess. It's what we, you know, believe underneath what we confess. So I'm so wrestling with that. Then also, um, yeah, I had to dive into sort of the theological questions that I had. I, I talk in the book about how, um, a pastor who is a mentor of mine, um, said, you can't trust God to keep bad things from happening to you. And I reacted to that because of course, on some level I knew that, but in another level, like I didn't, it, I didn't, I didn't like that being said out loud. Right. Yeah. I didn't like that acknowledgement. And then I, in the book, I write this question. So if we can't trust God to keep bad things from happening to us, how do we trust God at all? And yeah. I wrote that question and I had to stop writing like I didn't write for like a week or more, which I write for my job. So, yeah. that's, um, but I didn't have an answer. I didn't, I didn't know the answer even, and I'm a pastor, but, and so I could give a pat answer. I, I've certainly, if I, you know, if someone said, put a gun to my head and said, you have to give a talk on this, I could have, 
but I wasn't, I didn't believe it. I wasn't there. And so, and I didn't want to give an easy answer an all too easy answer. So I just sat with a question and really, honestly, like it took me writing the 70,000 words that the book was. And then I, you know, don't, don't worry. The book's not that long. Yeah. <laughs> like I edited it down about yeah. 20,000 after that. It took me about two years and all of that work to be like, okay, that I can, I can answer that question now. So some of it is, um, was theological in the, in that I had to go back to the story of Jesus. I think all of this is rooted deeply in this, in the story. Like I say in the book with it, we don't, Christianity doesn't provide a tidy answer for the problem of evil with this theodicy, the mystery of theodicy, but it gives a story. And this, this whole story speaks to the darkness in the world and, and what our response is to it. So I had that happening, but at the same time, I had this very practical, um, I don't even know what to call this because it's not non-theological, but there were these, there's this, this issue of, of spirituality for lack of better word of like, mm-hmm. well, then if I'm having these theological questions, how do you walk with God? How do you pray? How do you continue in this way of Jesus when things feel difficult or shifting or, um, or you you don't know how to pray because you have a lot of questions or you're not sure how to trust God or, um, and this is, so part of the book came out of, I read a study that I think one third of um, millennials and Gen Z, so younger folks who leave the church, who leave Christianity, say that they do so because they don't see how a good God could have bad things happen in the world. And that's a higher percentage by a lot than we've seen in, in the last few, the silent generation boomers or um, Gen X. So it seems like this is an increasingly um, intense question for people, Um, which is somewhat ironic in the sense of the world is probably safer than it's ever been. We we have, uh, even with the coronavirus, we have things are more comfortable and we have more vaccines and we have less um, child death and, and that sort of thing. But nevertheless, these questions of how can God be good and there be darkness in the world are, are loud for, for younger folks. And, um, and so um, I realized, you know, it's not just, these aren't, the thing that is leading people out of faith isn't just the, questions, but a sort of like, how do I keep walking in this way in a very practical sense when I'm wrestling with these things? And so the book also deals a lot. So it has kind of the theological stuff, but it it deals a lot with, well, how do we enter the story? Like, it can't just be like, okay, well, I'll just like think about the story of Jesus more as I'm driving to work or whatever. Like, how do we actually learn to pray? How do we actually um, deal with God with these questions. And what I found is that the Christian faith itself has loads of resources for this. Like we're not the first people to ask these questions. And so, um, there's so much that the, the faith sort of says like, yeah, you're going to have these questions. Like this is, this is the stuff that you're going to wrestle with. We've all wrestled with it for 2000 years. 
here are the goods, right? Like here are ways to walk with this. And, um, and so I deal a lot with that as well. <laughs> yeah. And I absolutely love, and I mean, you, I think you've mentioned it uh, in this conversation before, but you just talk about the role of embracing mystery as well and be and becoming content with the fact of like we will not have all of the answers like do you remember like and obviously i feel like like coming to terms with that idea is something that happens you know multiple times throughout our mm-hmm. life but do you remember the moment whenever that happened for you yeah i well again i think it is somewhat coming to terms with it like i again i have a seminary degree like i I know that we're not going to have all the answers. Like I, um, you know, I've certainly proclaimed that before, but I think, I think in a new way, um, the frustration of that, because sometimes it's like, you know, this morning, actually, I was talking to my eight year, my almost eight year old about the Trinity three and one and one and three. And she was like, I don't understand that at all. And I was like, it's a mystery. Like, you're not going to, yep. that's not, you're not going to crack this. Um, and, um, and so we always are encountering mystery in a, in a thousand ways. Um, but there's another, there's times I think of struggle with our faith or either, either we're asking questions about that. We're doubting faith or struggling with faith, or we're just in pain, right? Like the world, life is hard. Um, where it's not just like, hmm, like I don't understand everything. I know that, but it's there's this there's this like frustration, the psychological frustration that we we don't we don't understand everything. Like we're we're bumping up against our own limits, and that's hard. Um, so I do think I sort of did that again through this experience in 2017 of sort of stuff falling apart. A lot of the things I relied on like friendships, um, because, and my dad and even my own body working, um, and, um, and the grief of, of losing these, um, babies, especially the second one, because it was the second trimester miscarriage it was a long hard miscarriage and and the baby had a body that we had to bury it was a it was a boy so um walking through all of that I felt like um in a new way the frustration around the mystery bothered me like why don't we have answers to this why can't um we like just the the fact that human knowledge is limited is frustrating. And I think that that's somewhat new. I mean, I think that it's it's recent that humans have enough knowledge, but also are kind of arrogant enough to think that we could plumb reality, that we could get to the bottom of all of it. Um, and um, I don't think we'd want to. I think what a very, very boring universe if we can like, crack it all. Um, so, um, I, I do think that, I think that as kids, we just, we know, right. We know that there's a lot that we don't know. And I think the older you get and the smarter you get, uh, it, it, you, you remember that, but you always encounter it like running into a wall where you're like, Oh, Oh yeah. I forgot. I forgot that there's so much in the universe that I don't know. So there's a, there's a humiliation that comes, I think with that again, 
Um, but I really think like without that, we wouldn't, we, you can't have wonder. Like you can't have yeah. wonder if you think um, that all of life is measurable, controllable and predictable. You just can't. Yeah. There what do you, things like yeah. you can't receive life as a gift. There can't be gratitude. And I think we encounter, so I'm saying I'm sort of focusing on the negative of it, but I also think there's, there's such a, there's such a positive of that mystery, right? Like there's things about love um, that and beauty that are, that we just know. I think there's some part of us that knows there's something transcendent about it. There's something more than just, you know, our brains having neurons firing. Like my daughter this morning was talking to me about stars and I remembered um, in its Chronicles of Narnia, I don't know if it's, um, I think it's in um, Prince Caspian, maybe, I'm not sure, but they say, you know, what are stars? And Eustace says something like, stars are balls of flaming gas. And um, someone, maybe Aslan, I can't remember, says, even in, even in your world, stars are more than just balls of flaming gas they're made of that that's what stars are made of but that's not what stars are and there is this sense of man like at the end of the day we're like me talking to you like i have i have cells in my body i have neurons firing i have electrical systems working i have chemical systems working but there's something more there's something more to love there's something more to beauty um and we sort of even my friends who are pretty staunch atheists, um, they have moments of doubt about their atheism. And it's often when they encounter either deep tragedy and um, need meaning and looking for, you know, how, how can they be angry at a God if they don't, if, how can they hold God to a moral standard if there's no moral standard yeah. um, or deep beauty um, I have a friend who, um, was, is left the faith, was called himself an atheist and, um, had a child and the experience of wonder of who this little person was and how he loved this little girl made him sort of doubt his atheism. Um, because there was something, he just, there was something more there that he felt like couldn't be reducible or couldn't be explainable or couldn't just be about the preservation of the species. There was something he felt about his daughter that felt real and eternal and transcendent. So I think um, I sort of focused on, I guess, on the negative part of the mystery, but I want to highlight the positive as well, that I think there is more that we kind of regularly run into and it it's troubling in the, very best and needed way, but it is always kind of troubling. Yeah. Uh, you, you had mentioned earlier, um, and you may not have used this exact language, but how whenever you, whenever you entered uh, your tragedy after the miscarriage and losing your dad and everything, uh, it's a little bit like you didn't have the tools in your tool belt that were able to, to help you deal with um, just the grief and the loss and everything. Mm-hmm. And then that prayer what what were some of the things that you picked up along the way that were able to help you in that? Yeah. So um, that's what the book's about. So yeah. read the book. Uh, yeah. But 
some of the things that I talk about are, um, well, um, a few things. One is um, received prayer. Like the book is a lot about prayers that we receive. I felt like I couldn't really drum up faith on my own. Hmm. So I needed practices of faith that I could step into that I didn't have to self-express, but I could put on like, like kids wearing grown up clothes, you know, and sort of grow into them. Um, and so, um, that was, I felt like I didn't know how to pray. And so receiving prayer from outside of myself, um, and also silent prayer. I, I just think I began to rely on non, like non-cognitive, like not non-self-expressive ways of prayer. And I, and I pray just to be clear, I pray every day and like, yeah. regu- like a regular, like just talk to God about your day, yeah. come up with your own words. So I'm certainly not anti that in any way, stretch or form. I'm yeah. super pro that, but, um, I, um, but I, I, that ran dry. It was like a well yeah. that ran dry and I needed water from elsewhere and I needed other people to carry me, not just people I knew. I mean, I needed the church. I needed the historic church to carry me. So I needed practices, but I also specifically needed practices and prayers of that weren't shiny and tidy, that weren't, that didn't deny the darkness, that didn't give pat answers. I didn't need something that was like, you know, precious moments, like, let go and let God, like, I didn't need <laughs> let go and let God, like, that's so not what I needed. Oh, yeah. So yep. I needed to um, receive things from the church, knowing that, like, these are people who lived through wars and plagues and losses of children and losses of spouse, um, but also just regular ordinary, like, frust- you know, frustration at work and um, like, you know, the things not working, things breaking in your house, like, um, that sort of thing. And so, um, I needed people who were very honest about the brokenness of the world, but also could give me practices. So I found those in the church, in the ancient church and, um, also in the scriptures. I mean, that when going back to, I think, um, the scriptures deal a lot better with the human condition than we do sometimes in the church and, and then I did for sure. And so I talk in the book about, um, this particular prayer, the book is, mm-hmm. the, so the, the book focuses on one prayer of Compline and it's, um, Compline is nighttime prayer. It's prayer that Christians have done in the dark, um, for at least since the third or fourth century, it's long, long tradition. And so because it's at night, which is a vulnerable time for all of us, but if you think, especially think about the third or fourth century without electric light and that sort of thing, the kind of, and, and, you know, you don't have a hospital up the street. And so think about the kind of deep vulnerability of nighttime. These prayers deal a lot with mortality, with darkness, with the demonic, with, um, the, with fears, with anxiety, with worry, um, and with sickness and death with human vulnerability. So, um, I take one prayer in particular that, that is 
one of my favorite prayers became really important to me over the last few years. And I frame the book around um, that prayer and each, each phrase of the prayer is a chapter in the book. Um, and I use that prayer as a, it's really a tool to explore human vulnerability and yeah. God, which is what the book is about. And so, um, but the, so I take this, the, the subtitle of the book is for those who work or watch or weep. And that is from that prayer. It's um, keep watch dear Lord with those who work or watch or weep t- this night. Um, and then it keeps going. So those things in particular have become really for me, a grounding response to brokenness, to darkness that we weep, we grieve, which is something that I don't think I was very good at at all. I, I was sort of certainly raised to be like optimistic and keep going forward and don't take a lot of time for grief. And so, um, lament and I mean, grieving is a Christian practice, like weeping and making space for that is something that the church has always done. And the practice of lament specifically, um, that I go into more in the book, uh, was just something I didn't know how to do. I, I just didn't do. And, um, and so learning to lament, um, watching, so watching for the coming kingdom, like God coming to set all things right, waiting for Jesus to come and set things right, but also watching for how God is setting things right now, like watching for grace in our life, um, has become a practice that's really important to me. And there's some specific things. I actually don't talk about this in the book and probably should have, but like examine has become very helpful with that. This practice of where you reflect on where you see God at work in your day. Mm -hmm. Um, even, even on the worst days, um, and where you, where you also see darkness and God's sense, God's sort of distance, um, in a day. And then, um, and then work like we actually can be, we're part of this. Like we join God in his work in the world. Um, but I think activists, which I can be, and, and particularly evangelicals, cause we tend to be really activistic, um, can go straight to like, we're going to fix this. We're going to work. Mm-hmm. We're going to like make things right. And I think, um, I think that we, if you go there too quickly without weeping and watching for God at work, it can be compulsive. Um, which I think was my sort of tendency. So I had to learn the first, although I do also think there are people who weep, oh, the world is broken. Oh, we just need to wait until Jesus comes and sets things right. And then they don't, that's it, right? There's no attempt to like actually bring goodness, bring justice, make things better, like like address the darkness in the world. And so they need to be sort of like, um, encouraged that God's work does not preclude our work in any way. In fact, God's work propels our work. Um, so I have a lot in the book about in that chapter about the relationship between prayer and work. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to go back to kind of what you were talking about for just a second. Um, what, what, what might be like an indicator that people can go, Hey, I, I think I'm, I am stuck in weeping and Mm. not moving on to the more, uh, the activism of the work that you talked about. And, mm-hmm. and, and on the flip side, what would be an indicator of, I'm moving on too quickly from this thing. Mm-hmm. Like I am trying to fix a situation to where really what I need to do is I need to, I need to lament. Yeah, that's a great question. 
Well, I will say it's not linear. It's not like, okay, a tragedy yeah. happens. You need to spend like three months weeping, three months watching, then three months, you know, like it's not, it's kind of a, it's a mess, right? Um, yeah. Because we're sort of doing all three at the same time. Um, but um, so that, that's a really hard question. And some of this is, it's incredibly helpful to have spiritual directors yeah. and also just like friends, like community in your own life. Um, but I think, um, man, for me, I'll just speak really personally here. When I, um, am not making time for grief, I'm either finding myself in outrage, like in anger, I go to anger. Mm-hmm. or anxiety um or i um am not i'm finding that i'm not being really honest with god and the people around me about what i'm feeling like i'm i'm performing right i'm i'm telling god and other people what i think um should be said instead of what i actually think so um and also it's for me, this has so much to do with busyness. I think that's partly just that I have three kids and mm-hmm. I'm working. And so that may be a, like a season of life deal. Um, but I also can compulsively go to distraction. If I find that I'm like compulsively going to, I, I can't stop checking my Twitter. I'm staying up late at night watching Netflix, like far past when makes sense for me. Like I'm, I'm, I go to distraction to not feel, to mm-hmm. numb out. And then I find myself getting really snappy with people, really angry, really bitter, really, you know, uh, wanting to make, you know, snarky remarks online. Um, and I need to, at that, like, I'm not feeling the things I'm feeling because I'm distracting, distracting, distracting. And, but it doesn't go away. It just comes out in some sort of other way, like anger and anxiety often for me. So, um, so for me, if I, if I am not taking time to be still and silent before God, if I'm not taking time to journal that sort of thing, and I'm noticing that, um, but I do seem to have lots of time for Netflix or lots of, you know, then often I'm like, what is underneath this, right? Like what, what's happening? If this is, especially if it's not just like, oh, I stayed up one night cause I was tired, you know, mm-hmm. wanted to see a good movie. But if this is a pattern, like what's going on? Um, and then, so, so that would be sort of like getting busy, getting right yeah. to work, not weeping in terms of getting stuck in the weeping. I think um, the question there would be like, are you able to, notice God's work in the world, even if it's not in your own life, even if you feel like, man, this is so dark right now, there's still like things are happening in in the world. I I remember after um, we lost our son, our second miscarriage, I'm a pastor. I was still, I was doing baptisms um, for babies and people would apologize like, oh, like I'm like this has to be hard for you to like I think it's hard to have to look at baptisms when you've lost your own 
son. And I was like, no, I, I need this. Like I, I need to remember that like God is bringing life into the world and extending grace to people, to families. I need to remember all the goodness, all the beauty. And if, um, and if you, if you're shutting your eyes to all of that, um, so, so I guess in the first instance, if you're shutting your eyes to the grief and getting distracted or giving bad answers, you can tend to be trite. But in the second, if you're shutting your eyes to any work of God in the world, to any goodness and light in the world, and also to any way that God might be calling you to join him in that, then um, that's also not true. I mean, it may feel edgier, or I think that there can be a tendency that when we admit grief, that it feels more truthful. But, um, and that's partly because our culture doesn't do that well. Like, really, we don't do that well, like, in so many ways. Like, we've never had a day of mourning for COVID. Like, hundreds of thousands of people died. We never had a collective day of mourning. We advertisements tell you if you're sad, you're not buy this product. Like there's a solution, right? So I think because of that saying like, no, things are really broken and there's not going to be a product that fixes this. This, There's not going to be a politician that fixes this um, is a needed message in our culture. But if you're only proclaiming brokenness, that's also not true because there's beauty in the world. There's goodness in the world. There is grace in the world. These are, this is true. And so if you're closing your eyes to all of that or reducing all of that to basically consumption, like, you know, the world is broken, but let's get, you know, let's get some good wine or whatever. And I'm not anti-wine, but I'm saying if, if you're just consuming, yeah. then you're not actually being honest about grace and the redemption of the world. So I don't, I don't know if that's very helpful. Um, no, I, I, I don't I know is. if there's like a check or a litmus test. Yeah. I, I don't think there is. I kind of wish there was, that would be yeah. cool. But I do think this is why we need, we need spiritual directors in our life because this is going to be so individual. Like my yeah. struggle with this is going to be different than my husband's struggle or my best friend's struggles. So we need people walking with us in this too. And we're not going to get, we're not going to get it. Per, there's, we're not going to get it all right. And that's okay. Um, this is all like learning to walk in darkness is, um, is a process. It's not, it's, it's not like an algebra test that you get right or wrong. Yeah. All, all throughout the book, uh, you, you write it and you mentioned it even just in your answer about vulnerability as well. Um, I would just love to hear um, just kind of what you learned between the relationship of, of suffering and vulnerability and what you learned from God just through that, um, through those two things. Yeah. So the way I use vulnerability in the book, a lot of times we can talk about vulnerability as like emotional honesty. Like if I share something really personal with you, that would be vulnerable. And that's a fine use of the term, like that linguistically, that is what the term means, but it means more than that. It also means just, I mean, like I talk about the Latin um, vulner is from the word to wound. And so it's literally woundable, right? Vulnerable. We are woundable. And so even if I never share anything honest with you or anything that seems personal, um, 
I'm still very capable of being wounded, all, all of us. So I'm saying like, I don't know, pick the most macho, manly man, never shares pain, John Wayne, whatever. Yeah. Um, he is vulnerable. He died. Like, he, he, uh, before that he suffered, right. And is, um, and, and experienced weakness. And so each of us are vulnerable physically, but also mentally. I mean, all of us can have lose our mental faculties. If we live long enough, all of us will to some extent lose our mental faculties. And then, um, and emotionally, all of us are Mm -hmm. able to be hurt and wounded emotionally and um and we are every single person on this earth has been hurt and wounded emotionally and so um that is such a deep deep part of the human condition we just are vulnerable period whether we want to be or not and why why does god why is that it's such a necessary part of the human condition why does god allow us to be vulnerable he certainly could make us into superhumans that can't be hurt. Or if we come to Jesus, we could be never hurt, hurtable again, right? We could become Superman. Um, and it just seems like that's not what God is interested in at all. Like the Nietzschean project of making like um, these, pow- you know, Uber men and women, like these powerful men and women um, that are more like Superman, indestructible. Jesus just has no interest in that. And it just seems like there's this constant call to like going to our vulnerability, going to the places of brokenness, to the places of suffering, to the places of emotional um, risk. And so um, a lot of my book is, is wrestling with this idea of vulnerability. Why are we vulnerable? How, how do we encounter God in our vulnerability? And just the fact that we are period, that we can't avoid this. And so what's it mean to meet God in our vulnerability? And the weird and crazy thing about this, about Christianity is that instead of God taking away human vulnerability, God enters into human vulnerability. I mean, that's what we're about to, um, we're we're coming on Christmas now. And so, um, so God makes God, presumably all powerful, the ultimate, you know, Superman in that sense, Hmm. makes himself woundable. And um, there's no other story like that. I mean, that's craziness. And so, what is happening that instead of God taking away our vulnerability, God enters into vulnerability and then says, that's where we meet God is in the very place of vulnerability because he got there first. He entered into vulnerability. And so um, a lot of my book, well, my the first part of my, the, okay, my book has four parts. And the, the um, second part is called the way, the way of the vulnerable, it's sort of mm-hmm. how do we live in vulnerability? This is the thing that I was talking about with watching weep and, and wait and, um, working is how do we enter into vulnerability and continue in the faith? Mm-hmm. Um, since God is not going to take away our vulnerability, what's it mean to walk in that faithfully? But the second part is I call it a taxonomy of vulnerability. It's just exploring all these different ways that humans are vulnerable from um, 
cosmically vulnerable to needing sleep, getting weary, but also suffering, experiencing affliction, and then um, death. And then I talk about joy also as a place of vulnerability. So um, yeah, I deal a lot with vulnerability in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did want to ask, I know that we're coming up on our time, and if you have to go, that's okay. I just have two more questions. Okay. Um, and so if you have time, great. And if not, I totally understand. Yeah, that's fine. Well. Okay, yeah. cool. One of the ideas that I had just as I was preparing for our conversation today is, and I would just love your thoughts on this, is uh, obviously suffering is painful for everyone who is going through it. But is there is there a difference that maybe you've seen between the, like the way that I'm phrasing it is like, a one-time event suffering that maybe you experience the ramifications for weeks or months versus Mm -hmm. suffering upon suffering that Mm -hmm. stretches on into a year or years and years. Yeah. So I do make that distinction in my book. I make a distinction um, that is somewhat arbitrary, honestly. Like I make the, I don't, again, like there's no bright lines here. Like, but in the book, I make a distinction between what I call the suffering and the afflicted. And I make that distinction because the prayer does like we pray for, we pray that God would sue the suffering and pity the afflicted. And so that could just be redundant, um, like repeating the same thing, but for the sake of the book and also the way that I have, I mean, I, I pray this prayer still and have for, so the way that I pray for people in that, um, has become distinct. Um, that we each and all enter deep, deep times of suffering. I mean, you, you kind of can't get through life without some season of suffering. Like you lose a parent and you go through deep, deep suffering. Or even, I mean, at least all of us, most of us, uh, we will all die. And many of us will experience suffering before then, some kind of physical degeneration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so or you have a marriage breakup or you have, um, gosh, I mean, I, I don't need to list all the ways of suffering, but like, you know, deep illness, things that are deeply like you're just in the thick of pain. So, um, one of the things I, I make in the book is all of us grieve. Like we walk in grief every day. There's, I think grief is part of us. It's just like our circulatory system. It's just part of our life. But there are times where grief really sharpens, where it gets more and gets dark. And those are the, these seasons of suffering. Um, and we we all walk through those. But but in for quote unquote suffering, like normal suffering that I'm talking about, there's um there there's tragedy or there's loss, but there's going to be something on the other side of it, in the sense that like you lose a spouse and you grieve for a long, long, long period of time, but like life could come back after that, right? People get remarried, like, and that doesn't take away the suffering of the loss, but there's, there's, there's renewal afterwards, right? Or you, things can get better versus affliction, which is like, this is just going to be long and hard for years, for Mm -hmm decades. It's not going to get better. And I think that's hard for us is we want suffering that gets better. We want it to 
We want there to be sort of beginning, middle, and end to suffering. And sometimes there can be, uh, I don't I don't actually think suffering ever truly ends because even yeah. if you get remarried, there's there's still pain and loss that you carry, but yeah. but but things improve. Whereas there are um like a, friends of mine who uh have like schizophrenia, for instance, it's it's a, they don't think this will get better in their lifetime. Um, or deep struggles with addiction or sin. Sometimes it gets better. Sometimes it's, it continues. Um, things with children that are born with, um, certain conditions or, um, birth defects or, um, or, um, I don't know, uh, disabilities of some kind where it's not going to get better. Um, and, uh, so I, I call this the affliction, like the afflicted, of folks, uh, I have the closest I, I, I wouldn't consider myself part of this right now, though, of course it could always become that. Um, but I work with, I have worked in the past with chronically homeless folks and, um, that the, there are folks who've been on the streets decades or in and out of institutions, mental institutions and on the streets for decades. Now there of course could be improvement in their life. That's why we're working with folks, mm-hmm. but there may not be, or the improvement may be really small, right? The improvement may just be, okay, well they're, they were able to be institutionalized longer. And yeah. um, so with that kind of long-term affliction, I think it, it, the very existence of lives that are deeply, deeply in darkness. Um, we question like, where's God in the middle of this and how can God be good in this? And so, and I, I just think it, it, if there's any part of us, like I said, that, that has picked up a little bit of the prosperity gospel, like has picked up, even if we don't proclaim this, but has picked up that like, basically God's job is to make life work well for us. And if we do our part, then God should do his. Um, then the lives of the afflicted, the profoundly poor who are not going to get less poor, like like people that live in trash villages in third world countries, like that just, that just explodes that. Either it reveals it and says, okay, like we have to say all of those folks are like, under like they're they're in some deep deep sin right that we somehow aren't because I don't live in the trash village or we this there's there's something that's not the right schema right like that that it doesn't equal that righteousness equals your life works well and that um sinfulness equals so like long-term suffering and so um how where how is God part of this in this world where there is affliction, there's suffering that's not going to get better before death. Um, how in the world can we proclaim God is good? And so I deal with that in the book and, and I, I don't know, I, I, I should address it. Cause that's such a yeah. big question is that I I'll say, I don't know at the end of the day, I don't know like how, um, why God allows affliction. But I do know that 
very consistently where God promises to be found is among the afflicted. That it's constantly that is the place where Jesus is. He identifies with those who are afflicted. He identifies with the hungry, with the lonely, with the um, those in prison. Like he identifies with the what scripture would call the least of these. And so, um, and among the afflicted, you often hear stories of God. You often hear stories of God's grace and God's encounter and with them. And, um, and so that's profound darkness. And I don't want to like make that any less, um, dark than it is, but it does, it's certainly the lives of the afflicted, um, call into question any kind of, um, trite notion we have of blessing, any kind of, um, idea we have that, um, that we can work our way to kind of the perfect world or the perfect life, um, that we can, we can, just take away all suffering by our effort. Um, and, but I also think that some affliction, I, I mean, I would say this about trash villages in the third world are caused by like long-term injustice. And mm-hmm. so, um, and I think Jesus's response to that is to judge it and that it, and to, that he will set things right. I mean, so I, this is the thing about Christianity is that you're going to have affliction. You're going to have suffering, whether or not you have Christianity. Take take tomorrow, if we could delete this faith from the earth, like you'd still have folks with profound mental illness that's not getting better. You'd still have children that die. You'd still have profound poverty. All of those things would still be there. But Christianity... So Christianity doesn't cause the problem of pain. Like pain is there. Mm-hmm. Um, what is unique about what Christianity says is that this will be defeated, that this isn't the end of the story. Um, I saw, this is a on Twitter recently. It was a woman that um, had dementia. It was a story about a woman that had dementia. And someone said, you know, essentially I... <laughs> How, how can you see this woman suffering with dementia and believe that God is good? And, um, and I have someone really close to me with dementia who I love deeply. And, and so I identify with the pain of that. But for me, I think, well, dementia is real, um, whether God is or not. But what I find in Jesus is the hope that someday dementia and everything that causes it will be judged as less than what we are intended yeah. for and will be defeated and that things will be set right. And, um, and so, and that in the meantime, that God is found among the afflicted, that this is the very place where Jesus is encountered. Yeah. One final thing I want to ask you is, and I know that we've talked a lot about it, uh, throughout the book, but what's what's one thing that comes to mind that you learned through all of your experience, or even just through your research about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit that you didn't know before this? 
That's a good question. That's funny. I've been asked, I've had a lot of interviews and I'm not sure anyone has asked me that. So let me think for a second, because I want to give you a real answer. Um, One thing that I've learned from all of this, um, here's what, here's one thing. I don't know if this is really profound, but it was, it's, um, so what I'm saying is a lot of people might listen and be like, yeah, duh, like that's fine. Cause it's, <laughs> but it's a, uh, for me, it was profound is that, um, that suffering and joy are not opposed to one another, that they're, um, they often come together that you, if you, um, if you live your life to avoid suffering, you'll end up avoiding joy. Mm-hmm. If you open yourself to the reality of your own vulnerability and can trust God in the midst of that, you can be, um, you'll end up, and I don't mean to quote C.S. Lewis here, but I have to, is you'll end up sort of surprised by joy. It'll, um, it will come. And at the same time, I realized that I spent a lot of my life trying not to feel joy or not to um, let myself feel joy because I was worried about the other shoe dropping or I was worried about suffering coming or I was not wanting to experience that. But if, if you live your life avoiding joy out of fear that it's not real or whatever, um, you don't actually end up avoiding like suffering doesn't become any less. Um, and so you, um, you just end up feeling nothing but, but fear and it doesn't actually help suffering become any less. And so I guess one thing that I found is like, um, that, I mean, Jesus was a man of sorrow, right? He was deeply open to suffering and he was he is the source of all joy and also like walked in um his relationship with the father and the spirit and is walked in the fullness of all the fruits of the spirit including joy and so um joy and suffering go absolutely together in many ways like they they're they, you can't have one without the other. Right. And you can't, mm-hmm. and if you avoid, if you live your life to avoid one, you'll end up, um, if you in your life to avoid suffering, you'll end up avoiding joy as well. And so what I, but out of anxiety and fear, I can just sort of, um, avoid all of that. Um, and then I end up just sort of like trying to kind of like placate myself with devices and busyness and, um, and a distraction. And then you end up just exhausted. Right. And, um, so essentially to know joy, you have to be willing to risk suffering. That's just part of it. That that's one thing I learned. I think another thing, I know you asked for one thing, but, I, uh, I'm going to say multiple things. You can yeah, pick the best, you, you can you pick can the that. best one and, and <laughs> you can just pick the one that's most interesting. And it. But, um, 
man, this is something I've just come back to. It's not something I've so much learned as I'm like learning and learning and relearning it. It's kind of the thing that I keep having to relearn in my life. But that um, like either Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he will set all things right. Or like there's there's really n- not much hope. I mean, yeah. or really just live for yourself, truly. Like make the best you can of today. Um, and I, so all of my eggs are in that basket in a way that I think maybe even wasn't before I wrote this book. Like that either like we this story that I stake my life on is either true or like Paul says in scripture, I really should be pitied among all men. I am wasting my life. And so um, the stakes are high, but the stakes are high for every one of us. Like my friend who I mentioned, who's an atheist, like the stakes are high for him too. Mm-hmm. Um, because all of us have to stake our life on something, on some story, right? Atheism is a story about who we are and about who God is. So we have to stake our lives on a story and there's no, like, you got to do it. you got to stake your life on a story. There's no halfway measures in that. Like you're, you're going to stake your life on something and none of us really can hedge our bets. Like if you stake your life on consumerism, like that's, you better hope that story pans out. Like that's the story that's true. So in another way, and I think that for me, what this has revealed is like, man, like this story that I proclaim about Jesus, it has to shape every second and every minute of my life. Um, or like either it's true and therefore it has to shape every second and minute of my life or I need to walk away from it. Like there's just no, there's, so I just have almost like no more place for sort of like cultural Christianity or nominal Christianity. And I think the faster it dies, probably the better. And I think there'll be some horrible, horrible societal consequences of that. Um, so I'm not looking forward to that part, but I think, um, but I also think at the end of the day, like it doesn't <laughs> like this, we need something that can bear the weight of our souls mm-hmm. and cultural Christianity doesn't do that. It just doesn't. So um, I'm kind of all in, in a way that I may, might not have been all in before. Yeah. Well, Tish, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, Prayer in the Night, and continue to learn from you as well. Where's the best place for people to go to get the book? And where's the best place for people to go to follow you as well? Yeah. So to get the book, you can get it anywhere that books are sold, as they say. So go, you know, support your independent bookstore that um, Brian Borger, Hard to Minds Books. He's he was my very first reviewer and I love him. So you can get it there. You can get it at IBP's website. You could get it at, you know, you could go tell your Barnes and Noble or whatever your your brick and mortar bookstore is. Um, so any bookstore you go to, you can get this book. But it's also on Amazon. So if you if you really want to avoid yeah. <laughs> or if that's the way you shop for books, then um it's it's on Amazon. It's called Prayer in the Night to Sherson Warren. Uh it comes out January 26th, but you can pre-order it today. You can pre-order it anytime. Um 
And then finding me, I, you could, I'm on Twitter. Um, if you do Twitter, Tish underscore H underscore Warren. And um, I also have a website to sharesonwarren.com. And awesome. I have a monthly yeah. column in Christianity Today. So if you want to read something from me monthly, you can go to Christianity Today. And my column is called A Drink of Light. And um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this conversation, the best way to make sure that you don't miss any of the conversations that we have coming up is by subscribing to the podcast and whatever podcast player you use um, on whatever podcast app that you use. And so go ahead and leave a rating and review of the podcast as well as the best way or one of the best ways to show uh, your appreciation for the podcast. would love to hear from you. Also, show any, share anything on social media. would love to um, interact with you that way. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, if you have something that you would love to learn more about or something that really stood out to you from this episode, would love to hear from you. Reach out at uh, my Instagram handle, which is at Caleb J. Mason. Now, finally, thanks so much to Tish and to Garrett and to Sam for helping make this podcast episode awesome. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.